Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before today's episode, I'm excited to announce that fans of the show now have an opportunity to get some brand new merch to go with my new book coming out in February. I call it the Colorblind Collection, and you can find it on my website at colemanhughes.org. It's pretty cool merch, so head over to the website right now and place your order, or simply follow the link on the description below. Okay, now on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Cindy Yu. Cindy Yu is an assistant editor at The Spectator magazine, and she's the host of the Chinese Whispers podcast, which is actually one of my favorite podcasts. We talk about whether China will invade Taiwan. We talk about whether the West should adopt a Cold War-like mentality towards China. We discuss the phenomenon of Chinese espionage in the West. We talk about the wave of immigration from Hong Kong into the UK. We talk about the nosedive in China's birth rate over the past 10 years. We talk about the so-called century of humiliation. We talk about the legacy of Xi Jinping. We talk about the apparent futility of the democracy movement in China and much more. So without further ado, Cindy Yu. Okay, Cindy Yu, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I'm a huge fan of your podcast, Chinese Whispers. I catch almost every episode and I really recommend it to anyone in my audience that's interested in learning more about China. So congratulations on that. Well, that's really kind. It's good to know that someone listens. (laughs) Yeah. You write for The Spectator as well and uh, you focus on China. And so I'm curious, how did you you kind of come to this career? What's your background and what was your path to this topic? Sure. I was born in China in the 90s. So really really exciting time to be seeing China growing up. My family and I moved to the UK when I was around nine, ten-ish. I've just been in kind of London and in the UK generally since then. And I kind of fell into journalism because when I was at university, I was applying for different internships and The Spectator was the only one that didn't ask for a CV, a resume, as Americans would say. And I thought, you know, that sounds fun. I'll try to do the tasks that they want me to do instead of sending a CV off. And I got in and I got in to do podcasts for The Spectator. But it was through my conversations with my editor, uh, Fraser Nelson, about my upbringing, about my family, that we realized actually there was a big gap in understanding of China in the English speaking world. America's slightly better for this, but in the UK, certainly. Um, and so we thought, well, you know, why not combine that with the fact that I can make podcasts? And bam, that's how it happened. And I've been writing a bit more as well, as you say. So yeah, it's, it's felt quite natural, although it wasn't planned at all. Um, I've really enjoyed kind of going back to my roots, as it were, my childhood roots um, through my work and also, you know, through my studies as well, because I did a master's in contemporary Chinese studies. So kind of combining all of that to be where I am now. So you say... Americans have a slightly better understanding of China uh, than people in the UK. Why do you think that is? 
I think it's a great question. I think it's probably because migration from China and Asia in general has, uh, East Asia at least, has been more towards America. You know, if you just look at geographical terms, if you look at the fact that I think in California during the gold rush in the 1880s, a quarter of Californians were Chinese immigrants. Um, so that is an immigration history that the UK doesn't have. The Asians we have here in the UK are more likely to be South Asians, Indians and Pakistanis. So you don't have that diaspora there talking about things, you know, being present. The other thing I think is that America has a lot more at stake from China's rising than the UK does. Um, And the UK kind of in the last century let go of its world leader status and passed it over to America. And so who comes next is, you know, slightly less, what's the right word for this, less immediately concerning to the UK in a way that it is not for the US because it is that is immediately concerning. So I think there's more at stake for the Americans to understand China better. And then the final thing I would say is just it's a larger country. You know, they're more academics, they're more journalists who've been to China uh, compared to the UK, whereas sometimes the, the discourse is still quite small and often domestic focused. Um, now, that's not to say that all Americans understand China or most people who speak about China in America understand China, but certainly the volume is more. When I look at good China reporting English language, more often than not, it's from American journalists. Yeah. So actually, one of your recent podcast episodes was titled, uh, Does China Care What Britain Thinks? Which I thought was a hilarious title. Can you talk about that a little bit? What? Why did that controversy or question arise and what is your answer to it? Yeah. So that was an episode I did where I interviewed the British Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly. Um, and we talked about lots of things and that was just one of the things that came up, which is just, Foreign Secretary, you lead the UK's foreign policy, but do you actually think that when it comes to China, China cares about the UK as opposed to the US? Because when we're talking about this battle of superpowers, it is between China and the US and the UK is slightly, you know, not not at, on the front line with that one. So I asked him that question um, and he said, you know, well, actually we can support the US in whatever ways we can and it is still important important for us to engage with China, even if they don't necessarily see us as being on the front line. And I thought that was a fair enough answer. Um, That is true. You know, just because the UK is not the world leader anymore doesn't mean it shouldn't have a really pivotal role to play in this area. So I think that was a fair enough answer. But when it comes to China, you know, when you have the conversation, I went to China earlier this year to see some family and, you know, talking to family and friends there, they don't care really about the UK's position on China. Brexit in particular, rightly or wrongly, has been in the Chinese mindset, bad thing for the UK to do in terms of diminishing its own international influence. So they tend to care more about America or about the European Union. Union, um, less about the UK. Um, and I think maybe, Common, you have a slightly different perspective on this because you are US based, but in the UK, we can often talk about it as if we are the biggest people in the conversation still. When I say that, I mean the UK, but actually, it does seem like a lot of the China US conversations actually happen above the British level. Yeah, I think so too, probably. Yeah. Let's speak about China's foreign policy a little bit. In a big picture sense, China, you know, we're all looking at what's happening in Israel. We're all looking at what's happening in Ukraine and coming at it from a perspective of, you know, a mix of self-interest and wanting to be perhaps on the right side objectively of of a conflict. At, At least we speak about it that way in America. How do you think China sees these kinds of issues? What is its interest? What kind of interest is it pursuing, if any? I think that from my understanding of the Chinese leadership, and they are notoriously opaque, so we can't talk about those politicians in the same way we talk about the Biden administration or the British politicians. But having caveated that, my understanding of their understanding of international relations is that it's an interest-first approach. Because China has suffered so much in the last, well, let's say 200 years, they are putting their interests first 
above all else. Um, and I, I do think I get a feeling from them where morality isn't really at play when it comes to international relations. It's more about what um, satisfies your national interests or at least for the party, what stabilises the country such that the party can still be preserved. And one example I can give for this is its reaction to the Ukraine war. You know, China has for so long talked about the principles of national sovereignty and growing up in China, that was really important. You know, kind of drummed into me as a child in, in the education system, the importance of national sovereignty because China's borders were so infiltrated and invaded by lots of different foreign forces during this so-called century of humiliation. So modern China, we are told, really cares about national borders. But then when Russia invaded Ukraine, that position suddenly became totally superficial. You know, it wasn't backed up by any of the action or the rhetoric on China's side. And the reason for that is because national interests trumped any moral high ground that Ukraine might have, that any desire China might have to protest at, at the invasion of another uh, country's national sovereignty. Because China has a really long border with Russia, it's one, over 1,400 kilometers. It doesn't want to make Russia an enemy. There are also lots of different other things to do with energy security, to do with the fact that Russia's economy is importing lots from China right now. That means that China made a basically made a calculus to say it's better for us to stay out of this one and support Russia where we need to, but not get involved such that we are sending PLA troops to the front line or anything like that. But we're keeping both sides sweet and probably when push comes to shove, we're more on the Russian side. So that's a complete interest first approach to international relations, which by the way, is not necessarily controversial. Lots of people in America also advocate for that kind of stuff. Um, and I think basically China is just... It's think, actually the default worldwide. Yeah. It's really only <laughs> a few countries that even debate whether interest first or morality first. And is, I often think a... some of the politicians who say that are only saying that as a kind of cloak, a moral cloak for what their actual interests are. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. So I think that's how they see the world, that it's the stronger wins because that kind of Darwinian conflict is what they've just come through and survived and come out on top on. Um, and so why should we go from morality first now? You mentioned this phrase, century of humiliation, which I think won't be familiar to a lot of people. Can you explain what that is and how important it is to the way people think about foreign policy in China? Sure. So I think that is something that all people in China would be feeling quite keenly on. And I'm not saying that from a scientific perspective. Polling is notoriously hard in China. But just anecdotally and through the education system, the notion of a century of humiliation has been drummed into people, young or old, rich or poor, because they can see it, they've lived through it, they, they had grandparents who lived through it. And what it refers to is basically from about 1840 onwards, which is the first opium war that the, uh, that the British fought against China. Basically, the ruling dynasty at the time in China, the Qing dynasty, refused to open up its borders for trade. And in a very kind of con concise way, the British brought gunboats instead and said, we're going to fight you for control of these ports. And the thing that we want to import into your country is opium. Obviously, highly controversial and the Qing dynasty did not. Okay, but their military power was simply not up to scratch compared to the British. So that failure, that defeat in that 1840 war meant that Hong Kong was parceled out. And that's why there's this whole kind of current problem with Hong Kong at the moment. And that was only the beginning of a series of what's called unequal treaties, where China basically parceled out more and more of its sovereignty, more and more of its ports and territories to not just the British, various different foreign forces, including Russia and Japan, um, less so America at the time. And so that's what the Chinese refer to as a century of humiliation. For the Chinese Communist Party, it's a really important narrative because they want to say, we brought you out of the century of humiliation. Only when the Chinese Communist Party took control of China in 1949 did that century end. But I think in my perspective, if you look at what's happened since the Communist Party has controlled China, that humiliation, that suffering continued and continues. 
China is obviously in a much different place now, but if you look at things like the Great Leap Forward, the famine that followed that, the Cultural Revolution, um, in the last few years, the zero COVID policy, you know, I think Chinese people are still suffering quite a lot, actually. But it comes from the inside now. Yeah, and, and, and then the CCP would not call that part of the century of humiliation. So many people in the West talk about the Ukraine war, America's failure in Afghanistan, our pullout, and all of our foreign policy in terms of the effect it may have on China's willingness to invade Taiwan. I've always suspected that though there may be something to this, that probably China's calculus about whether or not to invade in Taiwan may not have everything to do with us, right? <laughs> like it may be a bit of a America-centric attitude to think that Xi Jinping is just like carefully watching what the U.S. do, what U.S. does, and that's the majority of his thinking. But you'll know much more about this. I mean, what? First of all, do you think it's likely that China will invade Taiwan? And secondly, do you think that America and, and Europe broadly, our attitude towards our own military interventionism, is a big factor in that decision? So, on your first question, it depends on the time scale. I think. I don't think it's likely in the next year or the next five years. I wouldn't put money on an invasion. But after that, so much can change in international relations. Um, the US, UK and Australia have this nuclear submarine deal called AUKUS, which would change the power dynamic in the Asia Pacific. Uh, the US is also gathering other allies like uh, India and Japan, South Korea, to really kind of build up this deterrence effect against China. And it might be that in five, 10 years, China decides, gosh, if we don't go now, we're never going to get this island back. Um, so I can't speak for that far ahead. Um, but in the next few years, one thing that is not US related at all about China's decision is just the fact that an invasion like that would not be like an invasion of Ukraine because it's not on land. You know, invading Taiwan would require a joint operation, possibly an amphibious landing, um, which means that air, sea and air, sea and land would all be utilised. And the PLA is not strong enough for that at the moment. And that's what all the, the in industry analysts say at the moment. So they literally can't take it quickly at the moment. And if they give Americans uh, a chance to fight back, America has numerous military bases in the region. Not, in, uh, not America has numerous bases in the region, including in Japan, in Okinawa. I think they wouldn't be sure of a quick invasion. They look at Ukraine and Russia and they think, God, we don't want to long draw that war. So I think that's the fundamental first reason why an invasion wouldn't happen in the short term. The second reason, I think, is because when it comes to this Russia parallel, Putin is one man in Russia who has controlled Russia for decades now. There is no party system behind him per se. Whereas in China, until recently, there was a relatively expected 10-year changeover of leader. Obviously, that's not now abolished under Xi Jinping. But the party is still an organization with 100 million people. You know, just let that sinking 100 million people in this party that came before Xi Jinping that will probably exist after he goes as well. What I'm trying to say is that the institution is incredibly strong. Xi, in his public statements, is not about all about him. It's actually all about the party. That's the main important thing. So I think that if he were to take a brash decision one morning and just say, screw it, I'm just going to go for Taiwan, the party institution will be much stronger in fighting back and saying that's not a sensible decision than Russia would have. Now, I do think there are parallels in a sense that the PLA has learnt a lot from the US, uh, from the Russian army. It's got literally sharing some uh, military technologies. And so it will be observing Russians, uh, Russia's experience on the ground in Ukraine to say, OK, what can we learn here? Why has the invasion taken so long? Blah, 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 blah. So I think that will be a lesson learnt. The other lesson is just the force of, of the American-led Western counter-sanctions. I think that will sober some minds in, in China as well. 
because they're not Russia, it's true. They're, they have an economy that's 11 times larger or something like that. But I think before the invasion, before February 2022, China might have said, you know, the West is in decline, it's separated, it's disunited. I think what the Ukraine war has shown is that actually when push comes to shove, the West doesn't have to be disunited. So I think that will also sober minds. Now, the ultimate question is, how do all of these balance of factors mix up in any one given point? And you basically can't predict, um, I think, either way. But I think in the short term, it's, it's unlikely. Um, and your second question was, just the force of, you know, American military. Yeah, you sort of answered it, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you actually did answer both. So speaking of Xi Jinping, if, say, he were to pass away today for whatever reason, and his obituaries were being written coming out tomorrow, what do you think his legacy would be? Well, it depends on if you are asking the People's Daily or (laughs) or the Washington Post. Yeah, maybe give me both. I think that the Chinese state media view would be, here is a man who came from really tough background. You know, his father was purged during the Cultural Revolution. His family was torn apart. He himself went down to the countryside as a party kind of punishment um, for seven years. And he came back and he worked his way up the top of the party rankings through loyalty, dedication to the party, dedication to the people. And you can see that in some achievements such as the 2012 anti-corruption campaign, which has been a relatively root and stem root root out of corruption in China in in the party system. They would look at perhaps the fact that they probably say that they, they won the war against COVID. They would say that. And they probably say that the vaccine rollout was a success as well when it comes to the whole world, because China showed this kind of leadership. They probably say that under Xi Jinping, China stood up again if he died today. Now, the Washington Post version, the Western media version would be quite different, I think. COVID was not a success. In fact, we're still seeing the economic ramifications of that now. It's true that the Chinese economy was slowing already before zero COVID, but right now it's just not rebounding in the way that it should be. And the slowdown has been worse than people feared. Uh, They would probably point to the fact that the anti-corruption campaign was probably just a way to purge his enemies. And actually, the data that comes out to show the lack of corruption isn't necessarily reliable. And if you look at the fact that he's still purging people now, General Li Shangfu this year, Foreign Minister Qing Gang, a few of the rocket forces generals, you know, corruption is still there. And he's still clearly not got control of the situation at home. You've got young people trying to lie flat. You know, this phrase that they say, which basically kind of getting off the hamster wheel of life, just trying to kind of give up and go for more like a Diogenes-inspired stoic lifestyle. And the economy is not in a good place and people don't have hope necessarily for the future. That's what, you know, they would probably say his legacy is because he turned away from the market reforms that made China such a success after the Cultural Revolution. But, you know, I think I think the truth would probably be somewhere lying in the middle of the, those two. Um, less hagiographic than, <laughs> than the People's Daily version, probably. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think he's got a very mixed legacy. And now I think if you ask the average Chinese person, that would be really interesting. And I, I couldn't answer that very very reliably because of this opinion polling data factor. But the fact is there are a lot of Chinese people who have a much more positive view of the government than we see from the from the outside. And that's not because they're brainwashed. That's because they've got other things. And I think you had Ko Yijing on the podcast recently and yeah. thought she put forward some of those arguments quite um, interestingly. Yeah, my guess is he at minimum is perceived as a strong leader, right? Which is like a lot of people, there was some interesting polling about people that voted for Trump in America and down down the line, many of them saw all of his flaws, but the one thing they agreed on was that he was a strong leader. And sometimes that, I think, in the commentary, we can underestimate how important that is to the typical person. Especially with the background of the century of humiliation, you know, to see China, quote unquote, standing up again. If you're a Chinese person, you're not going to be rooting for the other side. You're rooting for your side to be doing better. So I saw a fact recently that uh, apparently 
There were something like 9.5 million births in China this year, which was down from like 17 million just six years ago. In other words, live births have almost cut in half just in the past six years, which is really just an astounding fact. Uh, I'm curious, do you, have you looked into what people feel the causes of this trend are? And perhaps do you, can you speculate about what the consequences will be? Yeah, it's, well, we're in a situation now where China is not the most populated country in the world because that's now India and China's population is shrinking. Um, I think the reason for that, you know, obviously people first thought is the one child policy, which came in in 1980 and was uh, abolished in 2016, or at least the, the one child policy became the two child policy in 2016. And obviously that's going to have an impact because, you know, demographers know that replacement rate for population is 2.1. You know, two parents have to have at least over two children to replace that population size. And the Chinese government knew that as well, but they yet they forced the majority of the country to only have one child for, for, for 36 years. So that's going to have an impact. But I think part of the impact of that and part of the reason why birth rates haven't bounced back since 2016 is because partly there's been a cultural shift. You know, so people my generation who are of childbearing age, who've, but who've grown up as only children, don't think that they need siblings. You know, society is so funny. It's so manipulable sometimes like that. You don't grow up with siblings. You don't desire siblings. It's just the norm for you. You know, don't, nobody you knew grew up in a big family at all. And you might have aunts and uncles, but I grew up thinking that wasn't Chinese. I'd watch Western TV shows and think, oh my gosh, they've, have, they've got siblings. I just don't think that's very Chinese. But of course that's ridiculous because just a generation before me, they had, always, they had siblings. But I think it's a, it's a mentality shift. So people don't desire that kind of stuff, young people today. The other thing is, you know, the cost of living basically. Um, I don't have the num numbers to hand, but I think Chinese cities are some of the most ex expensive cities to live in when you compare house prices to income, you know, that ratio. Now, China's good because parents tend to help, culturally speaking. And yet, when you look at houses and also the education expectations for middle class people to put onto their children, you know, this tiger mom stereotype becomes huge investment in your child's education and extracurriculars. All of that makes having one child a massive investment, let alone more. So I think that keeps a lot of people from doing it. And I, I would say hazard a final guess, which would just be the fact that women are more educated than ever in China. You know, this is this generation of women are more educated than women have ever been in China. And lots of them, you know, they're like, well, we don't want to marry into a patriarchal family in the, the, the patriarchal expectations of my in-laws. You know, I don't want to have a mother-in-law who's telling me I've got to cook for my husband. I've got to clean and I've got to do all this other stuff. I want to focus on my career because I've got a master's in something, you know. So I think that will also have its impact. Um, and the government needs to tackle that kind of stuff. Instead of just raising the cap more and more, it's now a three-child cap, which is essentially doesn't make a difference because people are still not having two kids. They've got to ease up things like the cost of living. They've got to ease up things like the expectations on women to be homemakers and to be career women. And they've probably got to give some incentives to people as well. But we've, we're yet to see anything kind of widespread on that. And you asked about the consequences of it. I think most immediately we're looking at an aging population in China. I think, yeah, I don't have the, the numbers to hand, but we're looking at very, we're looking at the most rapidly aging population in world history. China sets records in all kinds of ways. And what that means would be more healthcare demands, more social welfare demands as people are coming out of working age uh, and into a retirement, but they, they're not earning their own money. They need the state to help. And so that will also have 
a cyclical effect on people having kids. Because if you're the working class, working age people in between, you've got your parents to look after who are retired. You're not going to want to add more dependence, your kids, to that when you're an only child yourself. So you've got this inverse pyramid. Um, and I think that will slow the, econ- the Chinese economy and less productivity can go up in China. And then in the future, I think we're looking at China that's going to be much, much smaller than it is at the moment. Which, you know, if the economy can handle it, if the society can handle it, I don't think fewer people on the planet is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, but I can't imagine, like, I've never seen a scenario, if you think of cities instead of countries, where a shrinking population was a good thing. Almost always it's a bad thing in the long run. And is there a scenario where China changes its attitude towards immigration as a result of this? And Very unlikely. Very unlikely. Very unlikely. It's a country where 96% are Han Chinese. 96%. So so the, the ethnic mix is not diverse at all. And we know about the problems that the minorities have in China, if you just look at the Uyghurs. And if you look at Japan, a very similar culture, a similar ethnic mix, you know, they've had this demographic problem for much longer than China has, and they've still not opened up to immigrants. So I don't think China will either. Um, and you look at on the ground, for example, in the, on the southern, southern coast, where some of the universities have had partnerships with African universities, where there are some African students going there. But the amount of racism that they face, the amount of pushback they face from the local community is really remarkable, actually. So I don't think China, would, the government would want to kind of open that because as a society, it's just very kind of, it's not the kind of cultural melting pot that we might, that the US and the UK or other kind of liberal democracies, not all, but some are. So one of the things about China I'm, I'm astounded by is whenever I meet someone that is in the know, whether they are in the intelligence community or former intelligence or something. And I asked them about the the problem of espionage of Chinese spies in the West. Basically, everyone says the same thing. They're like, yeah, there's tons. Like it's like they're everywhere. But there isn't necessarily an alarmism about it where, for example, if you dial the clock back to the Cold War and it were just like accepted that there are tons of Soviet spies everywhere, people would be freaking out about it, right? Like in a way, like overly freaking out. And that's what McCarthyism was. And so forth. So basically every expert agrees there are tons of spies from China in the West, but there's not a moral panic about it that I can detect, at least broadly speaking, which is kind of interesting. I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. And also, can you describe for people, if they're not familiar, what the espionage problem, to the extent it's a real problem at all, what it really looks like? And I, if you can loop in, I, I know you said on your podcast, there was a recent example of a, at least someone accused of being a spy in Britain who you personally knew to some level. So can you talk about that? Sure. So let me start with him. He's been, what we know is that he's been arrested earlier this year in March. He's not been charged. And it's a very confusing case. And all I know about it, I know from media reporting and some outlets have gone as far as to naming him. But I, yeah, I did know him um, in a professional basis because the Westminster China world is very small. He was a parliamentary researcher who worked for um, in this kind of world. And I just thought he was a totally normal guy. As I say, he's not been charged. So we just simply don't know what he's being accused of, what, how guilty he is. We can't conjecture on any of that. But it did create this massive, it whipped up this storm in Westminster in the UK. There were people saying, oh my gosh, anyone who spent time in China who speaks fluent Chinese is a problem case. And, you know, I've, <laughs> I vehemently disagree with that. You know, that's a ridiculous position to take. As a Chinese ethnic person, I kind of got used to people being a bit kind of iffy about, you know, how reliable people are. And I can understand that I'll never get a job in the foreign office because, you know, I've spent 10 years in China and God knows who I know. But, you know, if we can't even trust 
British-born people or Western-born people who just simply have insight into China through spending time there and have learned the language because we fear that they've been compromised, then that would be ridiculous. And I'm encouraged to hear you say that you don't think there's a moral panic because I feel like I do see a lot of moral panic. And I wonder if it were just at the start of it, basically, it's going to get much worse from here. And I think the US is really bad for this, actually. If you look at, is it called the, Ch- the China Initiative that the State Department had a few years ago, it's now wound down, where it basically picked out Chinese ethnic scientists in leading American institutions and on very little evidence for some of them accused them of being compromised and supplying secrets to China. Some of them have been acquitted and the program has now been wound down. You know, that was, I think, a moral panic. So I hope you're right, Coleman. <laughs> you know, I think that now that you say that, I think there's a nuance, which is I think the security state is very panicked. Mm-hmm. And I highly doubt that any Chinese national or some anyone with too many ties to Chinese nationals could get a job at the federal government or pass any kind of security clearance. So to that extent, I think that's totally true. Outside the security state, among the general population, is there a kind of like, is there anything akin to what the Red Scare was during communism? I don't know that there is. I don't think so. I think COVID was bad for this in general, but just because xenophobia comes out during times of fear and tension and Every single Chinese diaspora person I know has had some kind of funny experience during COVID with with people kind of... Thinking you could only get sick from someone. Absolutely, (laughs) especially at the beginning. But outside of that, I agree. You know, I I think the general population don't, you know, think anything less of Chinese people. And I hope that stays the same. But if you look at the reaction to Russians since the invasion of Ukraine in sports, in music, in literature, it has been quite discouraging to see, actually. I agree, actually. I mean, I was disheartened to see. um, I'm a very pro-free speech person. And I, I really try to maintain that even in the toughest times. I believe you should able you should be able to be pro-Hamas. You should be able to be pro-Putin and express those views, which I think are atrocious and completely wrong. But you should be able to say them, right? You shouldn't necessarily have your career destroyed, right? For, for example, I'm a, I'm a chess fan and there was a chess player that got disqualified from the, the uh, I think it was Sergei Karyakin, from the global playoffs of chess, right? Like the most important championship in chess, the playoffs for the championship he got disqualified from, by the way, which is why Ding Loren replaced him and ended up out of 16 people winning the world championship. So had Russia not invaded Ukraine, Ding Loren would not be chess champion of the world, which is a crazy, (laughs) yeah, it's like a crazy um, butterfly effect kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, the, the way, the way Russian, Russian nationals with any dubious, tenuous connection to Putin, alleged connection to the regime, were turned on, I thought was quite ugly and unnecessary to the cause of defending Ukraine. Yeah, I 100% agree. And and if if China were to invade Taiwan, I would probably, be very probably the same thing would yeah, happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I'm in a really privileged position um, when it comes to my, my influence and, and where I work. But I would be very scared for your average Chinese diaspora business person trying to make a living for themselves. Right, because if you're three degrees of separation away from someone in the CCP, oh yeah, how's that going to look? I mean, 100 million people in the party, right? Like it's And China is a country... And, and this is another one of my bugbears, Coleman, which is people who say, oh, you know, you've got links to the PLA or links to the CCP. It's a one step, it's a one party system. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. got links to someone in the system because the system is everything. Right. <laughs> that doesn't mean you believe in it. Well, this is lazy journalism. And there were many people, I know one guy who 
you know, it was said that he had links to Putin during the Trump-Russia investigation because he he just had done business in Russia. But he was like, genuinely, like, I met a guy once at a thing, and now I'm in the New York Times talked about as as if I have links, as if I have anything to do with the Trump-Russia probe, right? And this kind of thing does happen. And once you're marked that way, it's pretty much impossible to get that association out of people's heads, even if there's nothing to it. Absolutely. Especially if you don't have power in the discourse. I think isn't if you if you're not a journalist, if you don't have a way to put your side through. And we've seen that in the UK a couple of times where people with alleged links to the CCP, you know, you could be a businessman in south of England doing a food takeaway business and this is a real case. He was reported by the Times of London as a United Front agent allegedly. But you know, you put allegedly in front of an accusation like that, it doesn't just discount the accusation. People still think that you're going to be a spy. And so what is that businessman meant to do about that? There's nothing he can no, do yeah. about it. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. And so that's concerning because that's that's being judged guilty without a trial. Speaking of which, do you think um, obviously China is China and America are the two nations vying for global superpower? Do you think it makes sense from an American perspective? Do you think it would make sense to view China with really a kind of Cold War 2.0 mentality, or do you think it makes sense to view China more as a, a friendly rival? Probably neither. It's not a Cold War because in during the Cold War, when we talk about containment of the USSR, that made sense. You could try to contain communism because communist states did very little business with non-communist states. China is not like that. China, as you know, Coleman, is, is the major trading partner, I think, of, of over 120 countries in the world. Um, not all of them are one-party systems. Some of them are democracies. Some of them are Western democracies. You can't contain China. You can't contain China's economic influence. The, the diaspora for China, for example, is also you know, so much more spread out in the world um, than during the Cold War for Russians. So that, you know, the, the people-to-people links, the business-to-business links are so much more than during, this, during the Cold War, where it did seem like there was, you know, an iron war between things. So if you can't contain China, then the mentality of containment doesn't make sense, I think, because, you know, when you look at China's influence, let's say in African countries, you can't just have a panic about it every time you're like, oh my God, China's built another railway, because that's what China does now. Okay, so what are you going to do about it instead? I think you have to compete with that. And so when Biden talked about the so-called Build Back Better World a few years ago, which seems to have fallen by the wayside a bit, you know, just being like, okay, if you're a developing country, let's say in Africa or in Southeast Asia, you want Chinese money. How about we ease up lending for you too? You know, you can get some money from us too. And instead of making you democratize at a pace that you're not happy with or liberalize your markets at a pace you're not happy with, which Chinese don't make you do, we'll just say, okay, build your economy up first. But the West doesn't do that. It's hand-wringing about China at the moment. Um, So I think the Cold War mentality doesn't work. It doesn't apply to the reality on the ground. But I also do think that China is not a friendly rival necessarily. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is just so hard to understand what the Chinese leadership is thinking. They deliberately make it so. They deliberately are very opaque. Um, they don't leak in the same way that uh, democracies do. So when we talk about what Xi Jinping is thinking, China analysts are often just reading the tea leaves. In previous decades, people knew more, but now the system is so good at keeping it a black box so that people have to second guess them that China analysts really don't know why Qinggang was fired or why Li Shangfu was ousted and that kind of stuff. Um, which means that if China changes its motivation or if China's motivations have always been malicious, we don't know as much as we did before. And so I wouldn't want to go out and say, you know, China's always going to be friendly. I think Blinken called it a competitive coexistence. And I think that's probably the best way to think about it, that it is going to be really competitive and it might not always be fair play, but I think the US is okay with not doing fair play, but you're going to have to coexist. 
because China's not going anywhere and you probably can't get rid of the Chinese Communist Party anytime soon. Speaking of which, um, I, I remember a few years ago, I was talking to a, a Chinese woman born in China, but but in America. And her father, who still lives in China, is part of the kind of small pro-democracy activism community. And she said something to me very, very somberly and very sincerely that always stuck with me, and which was, she said, I fear my father's wasted his life. And I never forgot that because for her, it just seemed so clearly futile. You know, it's not, it wasn't like, it's not like the civil rights movement. Like there's hope uh, or, or on the horizon that, that things will change um, for people who want that uh, system, who want democracy. What do you think the prospects are for, for democracy in China? Is this just a pointless cause to be fighting or? You know, Colin, this is a question that I battle with all the time um, because I have, I obviously believe that democratic liberal principles are good, that people should have freedom of speech, that people shouldn't be punished for thinking things. Um, and yet the Chinese Communist Party seems like such Goliath. How do you ever get rid of it? I don't know. And also part of me always fears if you do get rid of it, will it be an Arab Spring kind of situation where the country doesn't end up in a better position than before? And I think it's easy for Western Democrats and liberals to say it'd be great if China just had democracies, but I worry about the transition. And I think during the transition, anything could happen. Some more extreme person, more authoritarian person could come in and sweep through. So I worry about, you know, I look at Taiwan and I think, God, wouldn't it be nice if China was just a stable democracy like Taiwan? You know, you've got obviously got a bit of corruption, you've got a bit of sniping in the media, all this sort of stuff, but it's largely, you know, it's a safe democracy. Wouldn't it be nice if China could just get there? But how do you get there? I worry about that without making this current situation worse. And I think I'm, I'm probably quite a risk averse person there when your friend's father probably is more of an ideologue, not ideologue, more of an idealist. doesn't matter how we get there. This is my final goal. I want to get there, but I'm worried about the transition and I don't see enough examples of democratic transition going well for me to think full steam ahead. Let's just do it without knowing how we're going to get there. And then when it comes to a reality on the ground, the party has become more strong in the last maybe 10 years. Xi Jinping is obviously a much more centralised leader than before. When the internet came to China, people thought, oh, maybe this is a way to have dissidency. And in some ways it has opened up those kind of opportunities, but it has also given the government a way of surveying people and a way of controlling people disseminating its propaganda that it didn't have before. And if you look at China's technological advancements in surveillance technology, and that was something I was so struck by when I went to China this year, is just how many cameras there were actively watching me at all times. Now, I don't think they were all government cameras, but private companies have taken facial recognition and run with it as a technology. So it's such that if you're going home in a kind of residential count compound of the Chinese sort, you now, in my compound at least, you use facial recognition to get in. You don't use a key fob. So my, you know, the, the the property developer who owns my my family's compound, they know what everyone looks like. And if the government asks them for that data, are they really going to say no? That surveillance is much more than it was before, even just before COVID. And so I do think the state is much stronger than before. I can see why your friend's dad is hopeful though, because... You can't just throw your hands up and say nothing's ever going to change because if you always think that, then nothing will ever change. And I think no one really ever saw the USSR falling. So we just don't know, basically. And I'm glad there are people like that fighting for it. He might have wasted his life personally, but I'm glad that people like that exist. Okay, so you recently wrote a piece about 
Chinese diplomats. How are Chinese diplomats, how do they operate differently than our picture of, say, American and British diplomats? Yeah, so this was a really fun piece of research because every single person I talked to who had worked with Chinese diplomats were like, oh my God, I've got so many stories to tell you. How long do you have? So it's clearly quite a universal experience. Now, I think in the UK and in the US, we think of diplomats as building bridges. You know, they're, they're kind of like the lubricant between different countries to make sure that they get along. And if you need to fudge certain things, you can fudge certain things. But what I learned from researching that piece is actually Chinese diplomats are more like a moat. They're the bit in between the foreigners and the central leadership. They're not building bridges. They're trying to keep you away from the central, lead, central leadership. And that comes across in the way that they behave. They're not out there looking to have, you know, socials, to have beers on a Friday night. They're not trying to make friends with you. In fact, they always go to meetings in pairs so that each can spy on, not spy, but each can watch on the other one and report back anything beyond the line. And Zhou Enlai, the China's former premier um, under Mao Zedong, he called it China's civilian army. And that's how they always saw the foreign service in China. It's an army-like discipline. It's like the civilian version of the People's Liberation Army. It's not out there to build bridges. It's out there to get China's message across and to be on message discipline and to serve China's ultimate goals, which doesn't necessarily include listening to what other people have to say. Okay, so... But call me if I can yeah, add, that does ahead. sometimes make them highly efficient. If you just keep beating that disciplined drum, if you don't leak, it is a, it's a efficient, effective, sometimes effective way of doing things. Um, so you, you get pluses and negatives, I think. Okay, slight pivot. Um, you also wrote recently about the wave of immigrants from Hong Kong to the UK, I think 150,000. Can you explain why that happened and maybe speculate about what you think the the sort of uh, effects of that will be? Sure, yeah. I think it happened because of what's been happening in Hong Kong in the last few years, which culminated in 2020 with China's national security law, which effectively ended this status of Hong Kong of one country, two systems that Hong Kong had been promised in 1997 when it returned to the people's uh, to, to China. Now people in Hong Kong, you know, because of the national security law, don't have the same freedom of speech that they had before that, which means that a lot of them are thinking about alternative things for their children in particular. The Hong Kongers I spoke to who are coming to the UK are worried about the next generation they're young families who think, gosh, my child is going through primary school now. I don't want them to be inculcated in the same kind of communist propaganda that seems to be coming into Hong Kong schools as a result of the recent politics. So yeah, so 150,000 of them have applied for residency in the UK. And the UK has opened that up as a deliberate thing to do because I think Brit Britain always had this relationship with Hong Kong. We talked about the century of humiliation. And so often some of them had links to the colonial rulers um, back in the 90s. And those people and their families can come over um, and it was a great thing for the UK to do in terms of importing highly skilled immigrants. In terms of their impact on the UK, I think it would be so interesting to see someone I spoke to who works in this area said that we could see a Hong Kong born cabinet minister or even prime minister within our lifetimes. And I think that's probably not unfair to say, actually. And the suspicion of Chinese spies... That will not apply to Hong Kong. It doesn't Kongers. seem to apply yeah. to Hong Kongers. So in the aftermath of the Westminster spy scandal, I talked to two people who are hoping to get onto the Conservative Party candidates list. One of them is Hong Kong Chinese, the other one's mainland Chinese, and they have very different things to say. The mainland Chinese was seen with suspicion and didn't think that they could ever really get onto the list of candidates. The Hong Kong Chinese thought, yeah, it's all fine. And in fact, actually, if you look at the data out there, it does seem like there's been such an influx of Hong Kongers to this country that they could be, you know, they could swing the next election, depending on which regions they, they've gone to. Some of the constituencies that they live in are quite marginal. And so that whoever wins the Hong Kong vote could really be very pivotal. Are they swing voters? It Do we seems know yet? like 
uh, from opinion polling that actually three quarters of them are conservative voters. Oh, interesting. Family values, low taxes in Hong Kong, so don't believe in the huge size of the state, um, believing education, kind of pull yourself up by a bootstrap kind of philosophy. But of course, I heard an episode that you did recently about left and right and what does that actually mean yeah. anyway? And I, lo- I love that so much. But it seems like the Hong Kongers here associate more with the conservative values. Okay, so before I let you go, I guess uh, I already plugged all your stuff at the beginning. Usually I have guests plug it at the end, but I already plugged you. Chinese Whispers, fantastic podcast. I really recommend everyone subscribe to that. And anything else you want to plug? You have a Twitter, you ha- you're you at The Spectator. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I don't use it that often. I don't, I kind of, kind of low-key hate it. I just, yeah, I, do, I just don't think it, I, it's clicked for me. I just don't really understand what it's for. All I do is whenever I have something new out, I post it on there, but that's more like a newsletter. I don't right. engage. In, in, but do you? I, I, don't, I don't see you doing that too often either. I don't much either. I mean, I only have the past two weeks or so because sometimes you get updates on the war more quickly from Twitter than you do from legacy media. Aside from that, I scan Twitter, but I don't really post much because I don't get that much out of it. Yeah, I think that's right. I'd be happy to just lurk on Twitter. Years ago, I definitely posted much more. Yeah, I think it can. There is such a thing as Twitter brain, isn't there, where people carry out their personal relationships on that. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. No, I think it's insane. I was like, just text a friend if you need to. If you need to get it out, just email about your dinner the night before. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of would-be tweets that I've just sent as emails to people, and I'm very glad that I did. Let's put it that way. I'd love to see your drafts. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.